This is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue. Welcome to Dialogue Out Loud, bringing you audio content from the pages of our quarterly journal with articles, essays, poetry, fiction, and more. The journal encourages a variety of viewpoints of LDS faith and experience. The views expressed here are those of the individual authors and are not necessarily those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of the Dialogue Foundation. Enjoy. Finding Rebecca, a eulogy by Marie Blanchard. The Daily Inquirer, April 24th, 1897. A poor widow distracted by life's burdens. One of those events occurred this morning, which causes the heart to grow sad and go out in sympathy to suffering humanity. She is hidden. How did your mother die? I asked Grandma Essie. She looks down at the floor. She died of Quincy. Something doesn't feel quite right to eight-year-old me. What's Quincy? It's a sore throat. Grandma walks into the next room. I ask Mama. How did Grandma Essie's mama die? She doesn't answer right away. Then she says in a hard voice, She got sick. With what? She just got sick. She puts her hand on my shoulder and turns me away. Now, go and finish what I asked you to do. I find that some things are unspeakable. The hollow wail. Grandma Essie has the willies again, my dad says to Mama. It makes her angry when he tells her. I know, because her jaw clamps down. Go and spend the night with your grandma. Mama is pointing at me. My dad never has to go. When grandma has the willies, if one of us girls goes over to her house, grandma calms down. The 11-year-old me inwardly whines, why doesn't mama go herself? But I go, because if I don't, mama will get mad at my dad again. In the night, wrapped in a spoon shape in bed, which I hate, but which calms grandma, I wake up to low moans. I can't quite make out the words. An unarticulated cry of desperation and abandonment seeps into my gut. Mama, mama. I tune to the sound of unbearable pain, residue of past wounding. Why this resignation? My two preschool children and I are visiting my mom and dad in Provo. I notice that the fold-away bed in the back room is stretched out and made up. That night, I realize my dad is sleeping there. Why are my parents like this? Why does my mom turn away from my dad? Why does my dad have the willies just like grandma did? Why does he have to know where mom is at every moment? That would drive me crazy. Mom, why don't you come back with me to California for a visit? We'll go to Disneyland and the beach and even Hollywood. You don't know your dad. Just tell him I asked you and you're going. You don't have to ask his permission for every single move. My sister and I hatch a plan for me to spirit mom away, to kidnap her, so to speak. Then my dad will blame me, not mom. 
We lure mom into the car, and I say I want her to come downtown with me. Mom's suitcase is in the trunk. Mom, the kids, and I get about as far as Payson when she figures something is afoot. Her face becomes strained. We have to go back, Marie. I have to tell him at least. My dad rushes out of the house as we pull into the driveway. He seems a foot taller than usual, and his face looks large and furious. I'll never forgive you for this, Marie. Never. My mild, kindly father has become a being I don't recognize. Mom, I'm sorry. I'm so stunned I have to force out the words. It is as it is, Mom says slowly and without inflection. This is the only thing she says. I observe how the legacy of abandonment surfaces in succeeding generations. Don't believe everything you read. I'm visiting Provo with my two school-aged children. My dad's cousin Esther is in town. Esther calls the house and wants to talk to me. I'm at the city library, she says. Meet me here. I pull up beside the curb as Esther comes out of the building. She has something in her hand. I found it, she exclaims. She hands a copy of a microfiche to me, but the quality is so poor I can barely read the words. I noticed that the article was published in the newspaper that preceded the Daily Herald just days before Rebecca died. I struggle through the first two paragraphs. Good Lord, it's right here. In print, no less. At four o'clock, Mrs. Rebecca Jane Reese, a resident of the Second Ward, diagonally opposite from the southwest corner of the West Square, attempted to commit suicide by cutting her throat with a razor. At once, medical attendance was summoned and the wound dressed. It was not believed to be serious. Doctors Taylor and Allen attended her, and on their testimony and that of Mr. Mildenhall, she was committed to the state insane asylum by Judge Dusenberry. Mom! Mom! I call out as I enter the house. I know about Grandma Essie's mother. Esther found out. It was in an article in the old Daily Inquirer. She told me Grandma's mom died in the mental hospital, the one at the end of Center Street, three days after trying to commit suicide. Mom comes into the living room, wiping her wet hands on her apron. She looks at the copy I have in my hand. Don't believe everything you read, she says. Her voice is flat. I encounter rigid patterns of thinking created by attempts to cope with unacceptable emotion. Rebecca Jane Draper Reese, my paternal great-grandmother, was born December 18, 1850, and died on April 27, 1897, in what was then called the Utah State Insane Asylum. Cause of death? Infection from a self-inflicted wound to her throat. So yes, Rebecca actually did die of Quincy, an infection then commonly seen after tonsillectomies. She had been widowed one year earlier and left alone to provide for her five children, ages two to 14 years. Working as a janitor in Franklin School and son Hugh working in a printing office brought in less than enough to eat. Cousin Esther remembers her father, Hugh, the oldest of Rebecca's orphan children, telling her of a time when the family had only apples for food for an entire week, and how the bishop tried to get his mother to marry an old man who already had a family, and in spite of polygamy being supposedly abolished in the church, more than one wife. 
My grandma Essie was 11 years old when her mother ran outside unobserved and into the street at four in the morning and tried to cut her own throat with a razor. Succeeding in partially cutting her trachea, she died three days later. After her death, four of the five children were passed out to different families, each family agreeing to raise one of the new orphans. Hugh, being 14, was expected to fend for himself. Don't depend on me. I'm walking around the grocery store. Behind me, my two-year-old daughter is intermittently reaching out and pulling my skirt. Stop hanging onto my skirt, I scold. Stand up like a big girl. Later, driving in the car, I question myself. Why did you do that? She's only a little girl. She was afraid. I question my behavior and see that I'm repeating how my parents unconsciously prepared me for premature physical separation. After many years and much study, I become a psychotherapist. The carefully groomed woman tells me that she grew up in a perfect family. When I ask for some memories, she says far too quickly, There was never any dissension at all, never a harsh word. I sense that for her, some things are unspeakable. This man has told me in the past that he has no memory of the period when he was five years old and his mother left the family. Today, he is relating a dream in which he is riding in a horse-drawn wagon. The horse bolts, the wagon tips and slides down a rocky hill, dumping him out on the way. I infer the residue of abandonment. A mother with seven children is pregnant with her eighth. Suffering from severe anxiety for years, she hasn't been able to find any relief. When I ask what made her choose to have another child, when she is raising seven already, she says, Oh, my children are very independent. They take care of themselves. Besides, I always feel better when I'm nursing. I infer a rigid pattern of behavior, suggesting intergenerational trauma. My new client won't meet my eyes and wrings her hands constantly. My family is better off without me, she says. I recognize psychotic depression and arrange for immediate hospitalization and medication. Rebecca, your tragic death was not a complete loss, for it has defined the arc of my life. And through my work, you have touched the lives of scores of people, though they, of course, can never know. Thank you for this, Rebecca. Thank you. Blanchard is a mostly retired clinical psychologist practicing in Fremont, California. She worked for a year as a volunteer with the NGO Thrive Gulu in northern Uganda, organizing a mental health program and training counselors in current diagnostic issues. 
Currently, she spends time writing and improving her short fiction. All client information in these vignettes has been altered in order to protect their privacy. This audio story was read by Olivia Mickle, with original music and editing by Daniel Foster Smith. Dialogue Out Loud is produced by the Dialogue Foundation with support from Mary Thieves and Salton Studios. Executive producers Sam Garfield and Daniel Foster Smith. To find more great audio content like this, go to dialoguejournal.com. And while you're there, consider donating. Thank you.